Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Adam Hawkins, and today I'm joined by the host, Elizabeth Woodson. Elizabeth, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. I am too, and I'm really excited for our conversation. For us, it's nighttime. Uh, for our guest, Dr. Christopher Watkins, uh, it's morning time because he's in Australia. So Chris is a lecturer at Monash University in Australia. He's a prolific thinker and speaker on topics in philosophy, religion, and humanity. Chris, you wrote a book on biblical critical theory. Welcome to the show. I'm going to call you Dr. Watkin because I am uh, honorific that way, but what would you prefer us to call you this this morning for you? Uh I think Chris is fantastic. Oh. Let's let's go with Chris. Oh. It's lovely to be here, Elizabeth, Adam. <laughs> um, it's wonderful to be chatting with you. Yeah, from Australia, anyone over the age of 10. For anyone under the age of 10, I come from the land of Bluey. <laughs> there you go. That's perfect. Yes. That's great. That is great. Well, you wrote, uh, you wrote a book um, called Biblical Critical Theory. And um, I was talking with Elizabeth about this earlier, just... Um, what you've done with this book, I think, is it's going to be, and I know we're just singing your praises, but truly it feels like it's gonna it's it's the book for our age. Um, how how do we engage culture as Christians? I think if you're interested in that question, you need to pick this book up. And so maybe just as a, a beginning question, Chris, can you lay a foundation for our listeners to start with? Like, well, maybe maybe the bigger question is, why did you write the book? Why did you see a need to write the book? I wrote the book primarily for myself, if I'm being honest, Adam, in the first instance, because I was an undergraduate in a large secular university doing an arts degree as, you know, a relatively new Christian, I guess, at that stage. Mm. And I was being, you know, thrown all these philosophy and literature texts week after week, and I had to churn out these essays on them. And then I'd go to church on Sunday and we'd take the Bible seriously and we'd read it slowly and we'd try and apply it to the whole of life. And I was like, the Bible has some really, really interesting things to say about the issues that are being raised in in my undergraduate course. Mm. Um, And it's a real shame that nobody wants to hear what the Bible has to say because everybody, you know, sort of has a prejudice about um, about what it must be saying because, you know, we heard something at some point that told us what the Bible said. Um, and there was also a bit of resistance from the Christian side as well. There was suspicion towards these philosophers and, you know, nothing, nothing good can come from them. And they're not asking any interesting questions. And that, that sort of, mm. there was a bit of a vibe on both sides of, of staying apart from each other. And I just thought that was just an incredible shame. Mm. Um, and what would it look like if you brought the Bible to bear on the sort of questions about, I don't know, power and identity and community that these philosophical and literary texts were asking. And then I started digging around and trying to read up on this. And I found that a lot of the stuff that I came across at that time, from a Christian point of view, was either just dumping on secular culture, like denouncing it here, there, and everywhere, and finding nothing good anywhere, and um, just sort of setting secular culture and, and the Bible up as completely oil and water. Or it was almost, you know, genuflecting to philosophy and saying we must appropriate this and we must almost, you know, make, remake Christianity in the image of whoever it was, Nietzsche or Foucault or, you know, Mm. whoever the flavor of the month was. And both of those just seemed really quite shallow and selling the Bible short. And so the, the impetus back then was to try and write something that would take the Bible seriously and, Mm. you know, not mess around with it and, you know, allow the Bible to be the Bible in its own terms, but also take philosophy seriously, not in the sense of necessarily agreeing with it, but of accepting that it's asking important questions and the people who are trying to answer them are doing their best to answer them. They're not, you know, they're in good faith, 
and the answers that they come up with, although they're not the answers of the Bible, are, are quite revealing about what it's like to live in a world without God and, you know, to, to give them that respect. Um, and, you know, there's lots of steps along the way, and I could tell a long story of how I got from there to here, but that's that's basically the impetus behind it. Yeah. I love the idea as a as a somebody who thought I wanted to be a philosophy professor uh, for a long time uh, and and also have going to a secular university. Um, that idea that Christianity had nothing to say to the inquiry that was happening, you know, the serious inquiry that's happening in philosophy. I'd love that your book, said no and 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 what we any of us um who become christians or are christians who are thinking seriously we're asking we're all asking the same questions what what is this world about how do i make sense of it where do ideas come from all these kind of big questions and the bible does the christianity does have something to say and so i love that your book speaks to it especially given the language of the moment maybe i can ask a question before we move too far for us in the West, I think it's true to say that, but I can maybe just speak for America. Critical theory, that term uh, is very fraught right now. It's a term that, um, well, I'll be really honest. When I was like in school, uh, you know, I studied the Frankfurt School. So I was a, a certain type of critical theory. And then I in, went to law school later and I heard about legal critical theory, which was a little different. But in the past maybe two years, these kind of really, frankly, kind of esoteric conversation that was happening behind the walls of the academy, at least from, you know, shielded from the public in a sense, has now become really public, mainly through the uh, topic of critical race theory or something like this. But so this term gets bandied about, et cetera. Uh, what, uh, Chris, could you just maybe help us by defining for our listeners, what's critical theory? Like, what is that idea? That's a big question, I know. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me give the sort of shrunken down version, sure. trash court. That there are two, at least two senses of it. There's the narrow sense that you you mentioned just now, that's really shot to prominence just in the last few years. So you know, when you hear about critical theory on the news, you're probably going to hear about it in the context of something like critical race theory. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a much bigger iceberg beneath that tip, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I was introduced to it in a unit that I did as an undergraduate called Modern Critical Theory, it wasn't really about anything that you'd recognize from the news today. Mm -hmm. It was about philosophers and social theorists really sort of after Kant, he was the big watershed, mm -hmm. um, who were trying to look at society with a critical eye and point out what they thought was wrong with society and how it could be made better. Uh, and so all the different feminisms were part of that. Uh, Freud was in that unit. Marx was in that unit. Um, Foucault, Derrida, you know, the big French people, Deleuze, were in that unit. <laughs> yeah. And and so there's a sort of commonality, a broad commonality between them, but it's much, much wider than what gets thrown around on the news today. Yeah, that's helpful. When you, in in your first answer for us, you kind of talked about how you tried to search for other voices or resources that did this, but you couldn't find m much um, that was substantive enough that you felt the impetus that I need to go create something. And so I I think I'm, maybe our listeners are tired of hearing me talk about history, <laughs> but I, to me, I'm just curious of why do you think that is? Um, is there a period of time where we see it and then it kind of falls off or has it kind of always been a gap in um, Christian history, this critical lens that we take to the culture? I'm really glad you asked me that, Elizabeth, because I, I could have come over as quite arrogant, I think, like nobody's been doing this until me, mm -hmm. which is precisely what I don't think is true and what yeah. I don't want to be heard to say. There's a bunch of this, like a whole load of this in the history. I just didn't know it at that time. And okay. the books that I happened to stumble across yeah, yeah. Weren't, weren't doing it terrifically well. So one of the sort of huge um, behemoths of <laughs> cultural critique that I've encountered since, and I realized, oh my goodness, like this was already done, you know, over a millennium ago, and I just had no idea, is Augustine yeah. in his City of God. Like he does this. He does the mm -hmm. thing that I'm trying to do, but a lot better. And, you know, 1,500 years earlier 
and in a way that I could never, you know, never get anywhere close to. So mm-hmm. what he's doing in the city of God is he's taking the whole of late Roman society, and it's important that he's looking at the whole of it, not just sort of parachuting down like some sort of SWAT team to neutralize one particular thing in late Roman culture that he thinks is wrong and then to airlift himself out, which is a risk, I think, in our cultural critique. We see this one thing in culture that we need to sort of descend upon, you know, like like ravenous dogs and rip to shreds and then disappear again. Um, but the, the problem with that is that culture is an ecosystem and ideas are sort of all related to each other and they've all got histories and they all feed off each other. And so there's no single thing that you can just put your finger on and say, that's the one thing that's, you know, problematic about our culture. Um, but he doesn't do that. He looks at the whole of the culture and the brilliant thing about the city of God is that he brings the whole of the Bible to bear on it. So the, the whole of the second half of the city of God. It's just telling the Bible story, yes. right? You know, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And what that allows him to do is to tell a story about Rome that is richer and more persuasive than the story that Rome tells about itself. Mm. Um, in the language of the theologian John Milbank, he out-narrates Rome. He explains Rome to itself better than Rome understands itself. And the only reason he can do that is he's he's using the whole of the Bible story, um, you know, with its narrative arc from, from creation through fall, redemption and consummation. And if he just had these purple passages that he was looking at or his favorite, you know, book of the Bible to use in cultural critique, he couldn't do that. Um, and that's why I think it's so powerful. And that's the, the model, I think, that's so incredibly helpful for our age as well, when we're not dealing with you know, Christendom, if we ever were. Um, and, you know, the culture that that we're trying to get our heads around as Christians is perhaps at least as foreign to a biblical way of looking at things as Rome was, and a lot more complex, I think, because there are so many Christian ideas and assumptions woven into it. So it's not like there was, you know, Augustine was dealing with Rome on one side, which was, you know, thoroughly anti-Christian, and then the Bible on the other side. And it was like, it's very clear that those are not like each other. Our situation is really quite a lot more complex because the culture around us is so, um, you know, cask aged in Christian values mm-hmm. like freedom and equality yeah. and and all of that stuff that you can't just sort of contrast it to the Bible like Augustine could because you know it's it's so shaped by Christianity and so you know we've got to find a way of picking our way through culture that accounts for the fact that it's been so fundamentally shaped by Christianity. And even the attacks on Christianity um, are very Christian-shaped attacks these days. You know, it's as if Christians are being beaten over the head in public with a stick. And, you know, as, as we sort of flinch under the blows, we say, that's my stick. You stole that from me. I gave you that stick. Yeah. Um, and that's hard. That's a hard position mm-hmm. to navigate. Mm-hmm. It's important, you know, one, as Christians, in, in some level, maybe we've lost the plot as well. Like, as much as the culture has forgotten where these ideas come from, and they are assumed in some ways, um, sometimes Christians have as well. And so it's the, I, I do love in the book, this comes through, but as we're talking, it's just, it's almost like there's a responsibility to a degree to, and this sounds more like pedantic than I mean it to be, but there almost seems to be a responsibility to explain back to culture, wait a minute, this is where that idea came from. But also at the same time where that has been warped or, you know, uh, maybe turned, um, maybe it's metastasized into something else, that ability to out-narrate, you know, um, I love that word, uh, where the, what the culture's arguing for now. If I could um, maybe ask a question sort of based on this, like I think maybe if somebody first reads the title and says, okay, biblical critical theory, um, and you've started to, we've started to answer these questions, 
what what are we doing? Are we basically taking the ideas in critical theory and applying them to the Bible? And that's not what the book is doing. The book is offering its own critique and critical theory, like you said, Augustine does in City of God. Um, and I just want to restate that and make that clear for the readers, because as I've talked to some people, they're like, wait a minute, is this like we're going to, you know, read the book with a critical lens of feminism or read the Bible, excuse me, with a critical lens of feminism or these kind of assumptions and those things. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not that there's something so much more important going on. But there are hallmarks, I think, that's really important of how people are thinking about culture today. The language has changed in a sense. If I, I you know, um, it's not simple enough to kind of do this syllogistic or even Socratic thing, you know? Um, there are the importance of narrative and story, uh, the importance of rhythms and culture and symbols and things like this. Can you maybe, just for us as you do so well in your intro, maybe just sort of start to introduce us to this way of looking and engaging with culture? Maybe use this idea of figures as you do. I think it'd be really helpful. Or if you have a better idea of how to explain that, you wrote the book, not me. You tell us. <laughs> I'll do my best to, yes. to, be able to see, yeah. see how I did at the end. Give me marks out of 10 or something like that. Um, the, we are being quite aggressively and systematically catechized yes. in our culture. And mm. it's not just our culture. Like Any culture does this. And it does it in a, a series of, of different but parallel and cumulatively very effective ways. Um, so one of the, the ways in which we're being shaped as people with certain dreams and fears and assumptions and expectations and all of that sort of stuff um, is, is on the intellectual level you know, certain concepts um, will shape the way that we live in the world. So, you know, we've got, by and large, a sense of time as a line. We think that history happens once. Uh, it's written in ink. You can't go back and undo it. And wherever it's going, whether that's wonderful or disastrous or somewhere in the middle, it's going somewhere. Now, that's not universal. Like, there's lots of cultures that have thought that history is essentially cyclical. Whatever happens will happen again at some point, and it, you don't really progress meaningfully anywhere. Things just keep coming back again and again. And to live in the world with a sense of time as linear or as cyclical is a really, really different flavor to your experience. If mm. you, I'm, you know, struggling for the vocabulary, but like it feels different to be in the world. So our sense of what space is and our sense of what time is, it really shapes us. And they're given to us by society. Like we didn't dream those up. We inculcated into them right. by society. Um, our language is pretty important as well. If you've got a word for it, you can measure it. It exists. It's there for you. If you don't have a word for it, it isn't. And the words that you use shape the way that you engage with reality. So that's that's also really important in catechizing us. Um, but there's a lot of non-verbal stuff as well. So for example, the fact that I'm here sitting on a chair and you guys are sitting on chairs. We're not standing up. We're not sitting down. We, we, we're not laying down. So, you know, we sit down to eat. We use cutlery. You know, there've been books written on the social catechesis of cutlery, like what that does for us, how that teaches us to think of ourselves in the world and what's important and how we present ourselves and all that sort of stuff. So there's all these objects around us that are giving us little lessons in how to be people in the world. Jamie Smith is really good on this. Right, uh, He gets it from Pierre Bourdieu, uh, this idea of uh, little micro-catechisms. You know, my mobile phone teaches me to relate to reality in a particular way. And, mm -hmm. and you know, Jamie Smith is really good at on unpacking that. Um, and there are also relationships, like the way that we think we ought to relate to people in society is also catechizing us. You know, I guess there's the big ticket things like, you know, is is marriage for better or worse for life? Or, or is it something that I can opt in and opt out of? But on a, on a much more granular level, there are lots of other assumptions in the way I relate to people that, that are shaping me as a person and teaching me what the good life is and how to be in the world and all that sort of stuff. And um, the institutions of society are also shaping me. Um, you know, obviously government, I guess, is the main one, but, you know, road, um, signs and the road etiquette like why is it that the 
laws of the road are basically the same in lots of different countries, but each country has its own etiquette of what's okay to do on the road, you know, and sort of in the UK, there's much more of an ethic of, you know, no, you go first. No, please, you go first <laughs> when you're merging lanes. Um, but here in Australia, it's a bit, I'm going to try and get in if I can. And if you get in before me, then that's fine. But I'm going to do my best. And, you know, in, in different countries, it'll be different. Like, what is that? What What's happening there? Mm. And it's that people have been catechized into a particular way of being in the world. And so all these things are figures. And, and I'm sure we could expand this list. It's not exhaustive. And so from the moment we wake up and regain consciousness in the morning to the moment we go to sleep, we're being taught how to be people. And these figures, these all these different sorts of figures are shaping us. And in the book, I, I try and talk about, well, how do you how do you think about the cumulative effects of all these, these different figures? And I use the, the word of a world. They form a world, right. you know, my world, your world. Um, you know, we talk about the world of, of Shakespeare or, you know, the world of um, Jane Austen. And, and this is the sort of thing we're meaning, what it feels like to be a human being in that particular, um, you know, literary text. Um, and there's also, of course, and, and this is where it begins to get really, really fascinating as a Christian. There's also, you know, the world of the Bible. Mm. There are certain things that are foregrounded um, in throughout the Bible and also in, in a, a more detailed way in certain biblical texts, you know, books of the Bible. There's certain things that are always sort of shoved in our face and certain things that we treat into the background. For example, you can't read very far in, in the prophet's or in the gospel, especially Luke's gospel, my goodness, without confronting the, the poor, you know, the widows and orphans. And, and without that biblical impetus, it's sort of reasonably easy to go through modern society without, you know, worrying about poor people a great deal. But you can't read the Bible without having widows and orphans, you know, smack bang front and center. Or, you know, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. You might have seen a thousand sunsets in your life, but it might never have crossed your mind. Well, that's actually testifying to God's glory. The Bible's made that visible. It's made it part of your world. Like, think of it in this way. Relate to it in this way. Look at the sunset in this way. And those are just two tiny examples. The Bible's doing this, you know, in thousands and thousands of different ways. Um, and so there's, there's such a thing, therefore, as the the world of the Bible, the biblical world, what it feels like to be in the world if the Bible is shaping you. Mm. And when you bring that biblical world into conversation with or to bear upon the late modern world in which we live, really, really interesting things begin to happen. Mm -hmm. And I try and tease some of them out in the book. It, what's hard is because it's like, you know, um, that what is going to be in my mind most helpful in this conversation is not for me to pick my favorite examples out <laughs> or to like offer some outline of the book, but for us to engage with this bigger idea of what's going on. But I do want to ask if you would give an example of what you're talking about um, right there. So you said I could go into detail, but maybe just you trace you, you start with Trinity and then you trace the storyline of the Bible and uh, it's just like you talked about the model in um, City of God, but uh, along the way, you're bringing these, the world of the Bible and the stories we're engaging with in the Bible, you're bringing them to bear, like you said, on, on late modernity. Could you give an example of what this looks like? I, I'd be really happy to, just before I do that, I need to let the listeners in on a secret. So <laughs> they're only getting audio, but we've got video. Yeah. And um, as you were asking that question, <laughs> Elizabeth was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> oh, our listeners know and, all and about that. We're off. Yeah. And we're off. And we're off. Um, and we're off. <laughs> it's true. Um, and I'm ashamed, but it's true. <laughs> Let's think about how our society conceives of human origins and, and go from there. Um, one way of thinking about it, and look, this is not the only way you can set this up, but it's it's certainly significant and it's it's a dominant way of thinking about our human origins in our society and, and human nature, is a split between, on the one side, a group you could call the, the Hobbesians, and they're getting their sense of human nature from Thomas Hobbes uh, and his idea of the, the state of nature 
um, that he, he he kept coming back to in different uh, texts. And then on the other side, you've got the Rousseauians who have a very different sense of what human beings are. And, and Rousseau also um, discussed the state of nature at, at length. The Hobbesians primarily think that human beings are um, selfish and aggressive and really need dominating by a big centralized power in society. Otherwise, they're not going to do what they ought to. Um, and often they'll talk about a thin veneer of society. Mm-hmm. So people are really aggressive and selfish and nasty, and it's only the thin veneer of society that covers that over. But, you know, when, say, a natural disaster happens, then people's real nature comes out and you get, you know, looting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the narrative on the Hobbesian side. Um, you got people like Stephen Pinker, who's a big, big Hobbesian. Now, he would say it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but it's, I think it's very strongly comes through in text after text of his that he's taking this Hobbesian view uh, of human nature. Um, and then on the other side, you've got these Rousseauians who say, look, humans are basically benevolent and good and kind. That's who we are most fundamentally. And you just need to let that shine through, you know. So if we get education right and if we get society right, then it'll be wonderful because you let people be themselves. And when you let them be themselves, they're they're really, really nice people. Um, one popular proponent of this is a guy called uh, Rutger Bregman, um, who uh, has has you know, written books saying, you know, we we should look really positively upon human beings. And and you know, if we if we get out of the way and let people be be themselves, then it'll be wonderful. Um, and the I guess the thing about both these positions is that there's a there's a grain of truth in both of them. You know, we we look at hu- human history and wow, we can be wicked. Like, you know, the animal kingdom has got nothing on us when it comes to sadistic you know, genocidal, murdering potential. Um, and you you almost, you pick your century and you can find the example of humans being awful to mm. each other. So you think, oh, well, Hobbes must be right. But hold on. We've also got example after example after example in human history of people just being so heart-meltingly self-sacrificially nice to each other and not like just people in their family or even in their own ethnic group, like people dying for strangers or risking their lives for people they've never met. And, you know, you can curate a list of that as long as you like, you can keep going forever. And so you don't want to sort of completely dismiss the Hobbesians and say, there's nothing in what you're saying at all that's got any resemblance to how people really are. And you don't want to dismiss the Rousseauians and say, no, people can never be nice. They're always nice. Uh, but neither of those positions really captures the complexity of human nature because the Rousseauians find it really hard to, to you know, understand that it isn't simply social structures that make people nasty. You know, they can make they, they can make us a lot nastier and they can give us great opportunity to exercise our nastiness, but that's not the whole ballgame. Mm-hmm. There's something there that those social structures exploit. And the Hobbesians, um, bless them, can't find it within themselves to acknowledge that humans can be just nice, like not strategically nice, not nice in order to gain some sort of evolutionary advantage, but no, we can actually just be really nice to each other as well. Um, and, and what the, the Bible presents is a picture of humanity that encompasses both of those and, and more actually. Um, and so the reason that it can do this is, is it's got, um, what in the book I call an emplotted understanding of, of humanity. So there's, there's more than one layer, if you like, to who we are as humans. There's, there's Genesis one, where we're created in the image of God and there's a there's a goodness to us in that. There's a you know we enjoy relating rightly to things, to to God and to other people and to the world around us. Um, but then you know Genesis three comes along, and we become horrifically alienated from God, and we want to set ourselves up as our own gods and decide for ourselves what's good and evil. Um, and we become alienated from each other, and we become alienated from the world around us. Um, and then, you know, as you go through the Bible, you've got the, the the redemption story. You know, human beings can be transformed. Social change is possible. Um, and y- you've got there not just a sort of a 
sellotaped together half Hobbesianism and half Rousseauianism, but you've actually got a position that's more cynical in a sense than the Hobbesians, because the Hobbesians will say, you know, you, you can't change human nature. We're really, you know, uh, we're going to always be selfish. And the the Bible comes along and says, I'm afraid it's worse than that mm-hmm. um, because our, our problem uh, is, is, is deep in our heart. Um, and even with an authoritarian ruler, you, you're only really sort of band-aiding over the, the huge gaping wound um, that is our in alienation from God. Um, and nothing can solve it. Like, you know, you can have your Leviathan, which is Tob- Thomas Hobbes' term for this, this ruler, um, but y- you can't solve the problem. Like, society is not the answer to the human problem. You know, look how it's going. We've been trying it for hundreds of years, um, and we haven't changed human beings. We're still the people we were. Um, so in that sense, it's more cynical than, than the Hobbesian. But on the other hand, it's more wild, idly, if you like, utopian than the Rousseauian, because the Rousseauian is saying, you know, fix society, fix the education system, and people will be will be great. And the Bible comes along and says, that's a really small vision for what's possible for human beings. You know, let me show you a vision of human beings where every tongue, tribe, and nation are gathered together around the throne. Um, keeping their cultural distinctives, but but with one voice, uh, worshipping the one God. Um, and whatever Rousseau's social contract is or isn't, it, it isn't a vision for a universal humanity. Mm. Um, it's, you know, the critics go back and forth about how how big you can be for it to work, but it's it's basically national. Um, and the the Christian comes and says, um, let me let me show you a vision for humanity where uh, there's no more mourning, crying, and pain when the old order of things has passed away, and when God where God wipes every tear from our eye. Oh, and also, by the way, where every justice that was injustice that was done in secret in the past, uh, every cruel word that said, every act of abuse that nobody ever knew about, will be brought out into the open, uh, and a full payment and accounting will be made for it. You know, this is justice for the dead, not only for the living. Um, now, that is such a richer, deeper, more all-encompassing vision of what a good society can be than, than Rousseau is capable of, of achieving with, with the resources available to him. And so it's more utopian, more positive, more robustly um, hopeful yeah. that, than the Rousseauian can be. Uh, and so it out Hobbes as Hobbes, if you like, and it out Rousseau's Rousseau because it's it's just there's more dimensions to the biblical view than there are to either of those positions. As I'm reading through the book, I mean, even as I'm listening to you, like you said, our our listeners can't see me, but like what is striking me about your comments is just how beautiful it is. Yeah, that's good. Um, and really, I think that's what. Um, you show us is not just why Christianity is true, but why it's the better way and why it's more beautiful. And I think um, the power of that as an apologetic in this late modern era, when people are looking for beauty and they're looking for life and flourishing, um, they're looking for the good life and to be able to have a thoughtfulness, right? Because what this requires is us to have comprehensive understanding of our faith. Right. And so I think about in the evangelical free church model, kind of how we have or have not handled our own form of catechesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people might have a familiarity with the Bible, but don't have the capacity to share the entire narrative and then comment on culture and say, this is why the gospel is not just true, but it's better and it's more beautiful for the good desires that you have. Um, and, and how, like, it just hits deeper. And mm-hmm. as I think part of my own personal story is being a kid who grew up in a Christian home. And I was like, I feel like there's more to the gospel than what I'm getting in this youth group. Like, I feel like there's more, there's more substantive <laughs> and it's more weighty. And obviously it's youth group. So, you know, I can hit or miss, <laughs> but it is searching and searching and searching and being invited through us, um, seminary classes and books and books like yours, uh, Chris, to think more substantively 
about our Christian faith and invite it into a place of thought and reflection that's always been there for us and say, the world that you live in, look through the lens of scripture and it will give you more. We are the ones with the beautiful vision. We are the ones. Don't don't listen to what they say about who we are. We are the ones with the better and beautiful vision. And I think the power of transformation in a moment where people are desperate for beauty and going all sorts of different ways to find it outside of the Christian narrative. That's wonderful, Elizabeth. Can, can we throw out some recommendations for people who want to go deeper into this stuff, um, who want that sort of more holistic sense of the Bible? I, I would... Um, I would make a beeline for Nancy Guthrie's website. She's got okay. a series of audio talks there where she goes through the Bible systematically. Um, uh, I think one of them is called The Chosen One, and there, there yeah. are other um, volumes. I found um, her, her book, Better Than Eden, I think mm-hmm. it's called, is really good. Yeah. But I found the audio talks to be really out of this world excellent. The way in which she shapes the biblical narrative is, is a real model. Um, I think for, for exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about, Elizabeth. Uh, Vaughn Roberts, God's Big Picture, yes. really, really helpful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy's Gospel and Kingdom yeah. is a real classic. It, it puts this, it's a shortish book. It sets it out really simply and it'll give you a sense of the whole shape of the um, of the Bible. Um, and then if people do want to get into Augustine's City of God, and I really would recommend it, but it's a big book and it's a complicated book and there are lots of names that none of us understand. Mm-hmm. Can I recommend a lecture course on it that you can get from Amazon and also from a, um, a website that I think is called The Teaching Company by a guy called Charles Matthews. Like he's a major Augustine scholar, like he's, you know, um, serious Augustine guy. Um, but the lecture course is just really accessible. It's like 30, um, half hour lectures. He takes you through the context. He takes you through it book by book. He sets out, this is why what Augustine's saying is important. This is what he means by this. This, these are the big moves that the book is making. And that for me was a game changer in opening the book to me. And then you can go and read it off the back of those lectures and make much more sense of it. Okay. At least I, I found it myself able to make much more sense of it than I was before. So those would be some books for people who want to dig into this stuff. That's awesome. Thank you. We will link those in our show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I have to ask, um, because you mentioned this lecture series with um, Charles Matthews, you recently, I think with um, the Keller Center, I can't remember the exact name of it, but you did a... Uh, sort of an online course, if I'm, is that correct? And are you, are you doing anything else like that? Or is there more, is there going to be, is that going to be made available in a way where people can engage with your work or you? Um, Yeah. Yeah. In a couple of weeks time from recording. So towards the end of September, I'm going to be filming a series of, um, I guess, lectures on the book. So one half hour lecture for each chapter. Mm -hmm. It's 28 half hour lectures uh, filmed over three days. So if you're, if you're hearing this before the end of September, please pray for me. Um, uh, and then I think the idea is that Zondervan are going to bring that out as sort of a, a course you can buy off the shelf and you yeah. can watch the videos and there'll be some supporting material. So that is in the pipeline. That's wonderful. That's wonderful because it really is, it's, it's meaty. Uh, in a way that's important enough to to really dive into it. And we're only scratching the surface. Um, you know, what you did, the moves you made between Hobbes and Rousseau, uh, I, if I'm correct, I think in the book is something that you call diagonalization. Um, and maybe uh, explain that move. Uh, you said it already, but maybe explain that move for us. Because I think it's really important. As as you walk through your book, you're, you're, we're presented with... Uh, cultural story, biblical story, and um, or maybe we see different cultural stories and dichotomies, and they're fighting each other. And then all the way, and then all of a sudden, we see the way that the Bible almost names them in starker terms, like we just did with Hobbes and Rousseau, and then gives us a fuller and and uh, more beautiful picture. And and that movement you're calling diagonalization. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I okay. think so. Um, the the name itself. Is is not a hill that I'd want to die on. Sure, like, yeah. Call it whatever sure, you want, yeah. and and the the importance I think of the name is that it puts a label on something that otherwise we wouldn't necessarily notice. But I think it's really important that we do notice it because it's a way that the the Bible can be brought to bear on contemporary culture. That that I think 
happens again and again. Uh, and there are sort of background reasons why this should be the case that I, I don't want to sort of overburden this conversation we're sure, going sure. into. But let, let, let me just give you an example. So in Genesis 1, you've got this really beautiful, again, to use that word, um, motif of the image of God. Uh, and whatever else we can say about the image of God, and a lot has been said about it, um, I, I think that there are two things that, that you can, you know, relatively uncon uncontroversially say, which is that it, it gives human beings a, a great dignity. So of all the things in creation, only human beings and very significantly all human beings are in the image of God. Mm. You know, not a beautiful sunset, not a... a, a classical concerto or your favorite piece of music or whatever it is, only human beings are in the image of God. It's huge dignity. But there's also in that same motif, a humbling of human beings, because if you're an image, then you're not God. Mm. You know, your identity is contingent upon the image is of something. No, it's not the final thing. You know, God is, if you like, and not to use this language irreverently, is the top dog in the universe. Mm -hmm. And so if you're the image of God, you're not that. You, you're subordinate. You're contingent. Your identity relies upon God being who he is for you to be who you are. And so there's a humbling there. Um, but there's no sense in the image of God motif in which the, the ennobling and the humbling are sort of fighting against each other. It's not as if we're half dignified and half humbled. Um, and then you, you come to late modern understandings of human beings. And one way of thinking about it is that they each pull in one of these two directions. They each go down the, the dignity route or the humbling route. Mm -hmm. And so some ways of thinking about human beings knocking around in society will, will essentially paint us as gods mm -hmm. and will ascribe to human beings all the things that traditionally have been ascribed to God. Yeah. And if people are wanting to read upon this, John Milbank in the early chapters of theology and social theory is really good on this. He shows how the idea of of as being self-defining, of us deciding for ourselves what is uh, good and evil, of, of us basically making reality around us according to our will. This The will is a really important concept in all this, is remaking humans in the image of little gods. Like those are the things that we have thought God did for hundreds of years. And now we're thinking in modernity that no, no, those are the things that humans do. So it's a godification yeah. of humanity on the one side. And then there's another sort of set of ways of thinking about human beings in, in the modern world that say, look, you can say what you like, you can dress it up however you like, but basically human beings are just machines, like really, really complex mm. machines. And this is going on as early as Hobbes's Leviathan in the early chapters. He says, you know, we cogs and springs and strings and wheels, and that's what human beings are. And today, you know, obviously with artificial intelligence and, and sort of the various computer evolutions that there have been, um, this this whole idea that we're machines has had a new lease of life. And other people will say, we're, we're simply and merely an, another animal. There's there's nothing really different between us and the other animals. And as, as Christians, I think you look at both of these and you say, well, the, the idea that we're gods is, is flailing around trying to grasp something of the uniqueness and the dignity of human beings within creation. Like it's blowing it out of proportion and it's forgetting the other part of the image of God, which is the humbling part. But it's it's seeking to, to grasp something of the reality of human beings in, in, in that we're there's a specialness about us, that, that there's a, a dignity that's not shared with everything else in creation about us. Um, and the, the views of human beings that say that we're just machines, onto something in the sense that, you know, we are human beings created on the sixth day like the other animals. We're part of creation. We're not the creator. You know, we're on that side of the creator-creature distinction. We're made from the dust of the earth. There's there's something, you know, in this, this humbling of, of human beings that's coming through. But again, it's blown out of all proportion. It's ripped apart from the rest of the truth and it's sort of twisted and so forth. And so as, as Christians, we we come and we look at that situation, what do we do? Well, what we don't do is try and stick these two ideas together and say, okay, well then let's say that we're half gods and we're half machines. How about that? Is that is that a biblical view? Well, clearly not. I mean, what would that even look like? That's, that's silly. Um, 
nor do we say, oh, well, we've got to choose then. Yeah, are we going to go down the we gods route or are we going to go down the we machines route? Because those are the two options. So which which we're going to try and squeeze the Bible into? Well, we don't do either of those. We say that both of these are dismembered and distorted fragments of a, a beautiful, harmonious biblical truth, which is the image of God. Um, and neither of them are adequate by themselves, nor are they adequate if you stick them together, because they've, unless you have the, the harmonious truth from which they're both ripped, you, you can't get back there. And so sometimes the, the sort of move that, that I'm making in the book is called the third way. I'm just not sure how useful that language is because it makes it sound as though you you come and you see that, you know, we're gods and we're machines. So there must be a third way between these two ideas. But that's not the that's not the case at all. If you like, the, the idea of the image of God is the first way. Mm. God's truth comes first. And then it's it's messed around with and ripped apart by human beings. And so what we're trying to do is get back beyond these two inadequate contemporary anthropologies to to the harmonious biblical truth that they're both badly echoing and badly trying to to grasp towards. Um, And so it's a first way, if you like. The image of God is the first way. And then the way that that our culture and other cultures have messed around with it is is derivative uh, of that. Mm. Dr. Watkins, you take a very uh, detailed journey through the story of the Bible. Uh, and I'm not sure how long it took you to write this book, but I want to believe that you were a different person at the end than you were at the beginning. Mm. And so how do you think, does the production of these ideas, the research, all the drafts, the writing, even post-book, and as you continue to talk about it, how do you think it's changed you um, and how you view God and just even your own relationship with the Word? Well, I've certainly got less hair now than when I've been <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a direct result of having written the book. I'd like to think that it's not. Um, I, I, I feel that I've not, almost not really begun to scratch the surface mm. of the riches that are there in the Bible for making sense of who we are and who God is, of course, and, and who what the world is. And the, the most wonderful experience, I guess, in writing the book was coming to different parts of the Bible yeah. and thinking, oh, I'm going to have my work cut out here. There's not a lot of cultural critique going on in this bit of the Bible. Um, and sort of confession time, I thought that with the book of Revelation, I thought, oh, what a minefield I'm getting into here. Like there's a letter to the churches. <laughs> You know, the seven letters to the churches at the beginning, and then there's a beautiful vision of of the New Jerusalem at the end, and then there's some weird stuff in the middle. And I might just I might just get like um a conclusion out of it. You know, I'll I'll do a short conclusion. And then, you know, you start digging in and you 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 come across some gems like Oliver O'Donovan on Revelation and Richard Borkham on Revelation. And they just opened it up. And I thought, oh my goodness, like this is almost the epicenter of cultural critique in the Bible, you know, and these, these sort of weird figures that you had some sense existed, like the beast and the, the prostitute, you suddenly suddenly see that they're incredible engines of ideology critique. Mm-hmm. And there's some, some really incisive work going on in the book, sort of just pulling, lifting the lid on this, this culture called Babylon and, and showing you what, um, how, you know, Christians relate to it. And it's so relevant and it's so contemporary, those middle chapters of of Revelation. So, you know, you end up squeezing the material into three chapters in the end, you know, thinking that you'd only get a little conclusion. And it's just moments like that. And the wisdom literature was another example where that happened. I I wasn't thinking of doing the wisdom literature at all. And then I had a conversation providentially in a, a, a church in London with someone who was doing a Bible overview. And I said, oh, what bit of the Bible overview are you doing? Uh, and she said, I'm doing the wisdom literature. And I was like, you know, double take moment. Like, but that's that's not part of the narrative. Um, and well, you know, it's, it's there in the Bible. And so we're doing it. And I thought, yeah, shame on me, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as you dig into it, you you see that just the, the angles on cultural critique that are unique to that part of the Bible mm-hmm. just keep coming off the page mm-hmm. at you. And you're like, you know, you're almost saying to the Bible, stop, enough. That's like... 
I've only got one book to write. Can we just... <laughs> no. um, it's already 600 pages. Stop. <laughs> um, but that's, that's mm. just a wonderful experience because yeah. you think, wow, you know, God is actually wise. Who'd have thought? Mm. Um, and that this is really a book that equips the person of God for every good work. You know, go figure. Um, <laughs> and just, just dis- discovering that again and again was just such, such a delight. And it's always lovely, isn't it, to find things in the Bible that you hadn't seen before. Yeah. Mm. Uh, when I said we we mine the depths of scripture, I tell people we dive we dive to the bottom, but in fact there is no bottom. Mm. Uh, because there are endless things for us to discover about God. And we're invited to learn who he is and who we are and what it means for us to live in his world as we read through scripture. And so we think about Christians throughout history, they've always lived in a culture. Um and so the Bible has always had something to say about that and to give us lenses to be a people who do not run away, but to live and live faithfully and be the bearers of truth to those who do not believe but are looking and are asking good questions about who they are and what's the meaning of life and why am I here and where can I find hope and peace? And that we as the bearers of the good news would be able to say, let me tell you about Jesus mm. and let me tell you about this beautiful vision of what life with him is like. Um, and so I think. Your book, Chris, and, and, and the greater conversation provides for us an opportunity and a challenge, an opportunity to lean into more of what it, it means to, to learn the story of the Bible, to be able to interrogate and ask questions about culture and comparing the two, but also challenge to the way in which are we being formed more by the culture than we are by the story of the Bible? Are we thinking that the culture provides us better answers than God does um, and an opportunity to say... I need to look again because God provides better answers every time. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for stopping by to share your wisdom with us today. It's been an absolute treat, guys. It's lovely to talk about these things with you. Lovely to sort of feed off your enthusiasm. (laughs) And um, yeah, praise God. He he has given us great riches. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from The Good Podcast Company. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. Drop a review or message us on Instagram. You can also check the show notes for more information on how best to connect with us and our guest. See y'all next time.